Uh, if you've got a Bible, I'd encourage you to flick it back to Romans 6 where we started today. Uh, one quick announcement from me. Um, John's taking annual leave from tomorrow. He'll be off for three weeks. We're sorry we didn't get it in the bulletin. And so if you would ordinarily contact John about something going on, um, please contact uh, Martin or I and we'll do our best to help. Uh, we're continuing a series on salvation. So we're looking at all the different ways in which the Bible speaks of how God saves us. And at the start of the series, I said salvation is a little bit like a diamond, that when you shine light on a good, clean diamond, it will sparkle brilliantly in different lights. And our salvation, the way that God saves us, is similar. And so today we're looking at the concept of redemption, which is that God buys us out of slavery. He pays the price to set us free. Uh, how about I pray? I'll ask God to speak and we'll get stuck in. Lord God, we thank you that we can gather today. And we thank you that you're a God who redeems. You're a God who sets us free. Help us today to see what freedom in Christ is. Um, and we pray that as we hear what Jesus has done for us, that some who are slaves to sin would be set free this morning and that those of us who are Christians would walk in the freedom that we have. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We, we live in a pretty polarised society, I think it's fair to say, but I reckon one thing that most, nearly all Australians could agree on is slavery is bad. We would agree on that. I think if you put a poll out there, is slavery bad? Most people would go, yep. You know, it'd have to be 99 point something, 9% of Australians who would agree. And I think part of that is for our culture, freedom and autonomy and liberty are sacred, aren't they? Like at a societal level, those values shape moral decisions. They shape debates about moral decisions. So, for example, some of the biggest moral ethical decisions of our society and the things that people are most divided about, say abortion or euthanasia, often what we have is one side that values personal autonomy and freedom versus another side that values the sanctity of life. Now, don't hear me say that this rise in a valuing of freedom is a bad thing. There's so many ways in which it's good. It's further democracy. It's helped fight abuse. It provides opportunity for people, particularly those who are oppressed. But that human desire for freedom also affects us personally, doesn't it? I mean, how many of us have had this thought? Someone asks you to do something and in your mind you think, I'm not your slave. Anyone else had that moment? I've had kids yell that at me, my own. But I've even had that thought as my wife's asked me to do something. How many of us have had that thought where we say in our hearts, you can't tell me what to do? And yet even in my own family, like I've promised my wife I'll be her servant, her slave unto death. I stood before all our friends and family and said, I will love you as Christ loved the church. And he died. He died for the church. So if there's any definition of being a servant and a slave, it's Christ. I willingly promised it. And yet when she asked me to get up off the lounge and do some small menial task, my heart goes, oh, I will do as I please. And I do not please to do that. It doesn't take a genius to consider that if everyone takes that attitude all the time, life will be marked by conflict and loneliness. Yeah? If all of us are only willing to serve ourselves... 
And if all of us are only ever fighting for our own freedom to do whatever we want, when we want, life will be awful. I mean, freedom in relationship must be limited, mustn't it, in order for love to flourish. In fact, relationships work at their best when two people in that relationship completely abandon their freedom for the good of the other. And this this idea and this promise of freedom in our culture, for many, it collides with Christianity. Uh, I've met and talked with people who, who say, if I became a Christian, I'd have to change. I wouldn't be free to do as I please. There are things I'd have to give up. And they're right. That's right. But sometimes they conclude that Christianity is a straitjacket. That is, Christianity will not just restrict the things that I want to do, but it will make my life awful. Because who wants to live in a straitjacket? Now, they're partly right. Jesus says, obey me. He gives rules and boundaries. But they're wrong in the sense that Christ's commands kill joy or life or flourishing. And so today, whether you're a Christian or whether you're someone checking out the Christian faith, wherever you stand with Christ, I really want to encourage you today to think through what freedom is and whether you've got it. To consider who is your master. And so here's the plan for today. We're going to look at some context, both of our culture and freedom, as well as Romans 6. We're going to look at what Romans 6 says about real slavery. We're going to look at Romans and Hosea to consider how we're freed, especially how Christ sets us free. And then we're going to finish by looking at what it looks like to live free according to the Bible. So some context, real slavery from Romans, how we're freed from Romans and Hosea, and then a life of freedom. Let's start with our culture. We value freedom. We value individual autonomy in our society. A hundred years ago, we were just coming out of World War I, and the most treasured values of society a hundred years ago were things like service and duty and sacrifice. Now, we still value those things in our society. But today I would, I would guess that autonomy and liberty and freedom are probably more highly valued. Now, I wasn't alive in 1920. I don't want to say that those days were the glory days. I don't think they were at all. But I'm simply, I guess, saying that culture's changed. We're more wary of authority these days, aren't we? We're more cynical towards power, and for good reason, because trust is often broken by those in power. But freedom, when you think about it, true freedom is never total. Nor do we want it. We don't want true total freedom in our society for everyone. Here's why. If everyone does as they please whenever they want, life would be insane, wouldn't it? Imagine total total freedom as we all get in our cars and drive home. Free to pick which side of the road you want to drive on. Free to pick how fast you'll go. You know, total freedom on the roads would be insane. Or electricians, total freedom to wire your house as they decide to leave frayed wires hanging out of the walls. What about doctors, total freedom to give whatever drugs they want whenever they want to you. My children, should we give them total freedom? I mean, do we want the building to burn down? <laughs> 
see, to be anarchy, boundaries are actually good things. They bring enjoyment and safety. Perhaps our issue is less about freedom as a general rule, but more about what the boundaries are. Because none of us would advocate, none of us would advocate for abandoning road rules, but some of us have got issues with some of the road rules, don't we? Some of us think the speed limits are too slow. Some of us think that roundabout shouldn't be traffic lights. Some of us think we should be able to talk on our phones because we're very good at it. I mean, I still have a memory of watching my dad drive whilst talking on the phone, phone here, and making a honey sandwich at the same time. It was quite impressive, highly illegal. So our issue is not so much with we want total freedom. Our issue is more about the particular boundaries that grate with people. Could it be that what Jesus says about money or about sex, or about forgiveness, or church, or the cost of following him, are actually the things that grate with us, which means it's less about freedom and more about who reigns in our lives. It's less about having total freedom and more about us wanting to have our say about particular things, who rules, who guides, who leads. Now, before we turn to real slavery and real freedom, let me give you some context for Romans. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a group of Christians in Rome. And in chapters 1 to 3, we actually looked at this a little bit last week, Paul essentially says, all of us are bad. All of us have rebelled against God's authority. All of us have worshipped created things rather than the creator. There's no one righteous, not one. And we looked at last week how God justifies sinners. Justifying is where God declares a sinner righteous. And we're justified, we're told, through faith in Jesus. We're justified freely by his grace. In fact, in chapter 3 it says we're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice for our sins. In chapter 5, we're told that one result of being justified is peace with God. We're actually going to look at that next week. But in chapter 5 in the second half, there's another blessing that comes when a person's declared righteous by God. It it says that something on a cosmic spiritual level happens. It's a bit strange. It says that we're transferred from the realm of sin and law and death and Adam and we're transferred into the realm of obedience, life, grace and Christ. It's not a sci-fi thing. It's not like somehow you get beamed to an alternate reality. But rather he's saying when a person believes in Jesus, they're united to him and they're no longer under the power of sin. They're no longer on the power, under the power of the law or death. It's like all people are born belonging to the, the family of Adam, but when a person puts their faith in Christ, they actually belong to him. They're set free from the penalty and power of sin. And at the start of chapter 6, Paul anticipates an argument. Have a look with me. At the start of chapter 6 of Romans, he says, what shall we say then? Are we, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Here's the argument. If you tell people that they're saved by grace, that it's God's kindness, they will therefore do whatever they want and say, look, grace, it's amazing. Look how bad I'm sinning and God still forgives me. Look how amazing grace is. Paul says, won't people do that? He says, verse 2, by no means. If you've tasted grace, it must change you. 
And in the next verses that we read earlier, it says that when a person trusts in Jesus, they're united to him in his death and resurrection. Verse 4, it says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That is, a person who's received grace is meant to be changed by it. A person for whom Christ dies for their sins should go, Hmm, I want to start putting sin away. I want to live the new life that Christ has given. And it's here in chapter 6 that we get God's perspective of what real slavery is. Now, I'm really sorry. I'd love to walk through this whole chapter. Uh, I, you don't want me to talk for an hour. And so I want to just show you in two places where we see what God has to say about real slavery. Have a look with me, verse 5 and 6. For if we've been united with Christ in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Here's the key verse. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So Christ's death does something so that we are no longer enslaved to sin. Have a look at verse 15 with me. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? Here's what the Bible is teaching. All of us, by nature, are enslaved to sin. We just can't help it. Have you ever sinned and gone, I just couldn't help it? It was just the reaction. And all of us also choose sin. We've offered ourselves as slaves to sin by obeying it. And so here's here's how this plays out. All of us have a propensity towards sin. And whilst we can grow and improve, we can change, we are still captive. Like in ourselves, we have no capacity to free ourselves from sin. If you think that's wrong, just go for a day and try and be perfect. Just try. Just try. I promise you that if you nail it, you'll be really proud and then you'll have messed it up because you got proud. (laughs) We have no capacity to free ourselves and we also choose it. And so the person who uses their freedom to search after money or fame or success or the perfect family, they're making choices And the Bible says they're slaves to self or to money or to status or to beauty. What it's saying is that all of us have a functional master. We have someone or something that we serve that we look to to provide security and significance and satisfaction. Now, there are some really obvious ones. If you ever see those people who become uh, addicts to plastic surgery and their face is so deformed and they are just trying to be beautiful, that is an extreme picture of a person who is a slave to beauty. And the irony of it, the tragic irony of it, is that they don't end up beautiful, but they end up disfigured. But that's, that's not the only example. You could also see it in the parents who desire for their kids to have everything and do everything. Their lives literally look like slavery to their children because their children's routine rules life. Whatever the kids want, they do. There's a good heart behind it, just as there is the heart to be beautiful. 
Beauty is a good thing. Kids enjoying good things, that's a good thing. But we make them our master. And what happens is the beautiful person doesn't end up beautiful. But it's also true that sometimes when parents, some of the angriest, I used to work in schools, and some of the angriest parents would be the parents whose child was essentially their God and the child failed. And for them it was like their God had just died. Their master had just failed them and suddenly they couldn't cope. It's slavery. The Bible says if you build your life on anything other than Christ, you're a slave. Bob Dylan knew it. He had a song. You've got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. All of us have a master that we serve. And the end result? Have a look at verse 20 with me. It says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. That is, when you were a slave of sin, you thought you could do what you wanted. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed for the end of those things is death. You know, when Jesus showed up, he, he said, I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. He said, I am the gate for the sheep. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and life to the full. What's, what's he saying? Build your life on anything other than me. Make anyone other than me your master and it will lead to death. But only me, only I lead to life. These masters we serve, they don't save or satisfy. It's why you always want more money. Or why you always want your kids to be better. It's why the promotion is often never enough. It's why the things of this world, whilst they feel good for a while, they're fleeting, they don't last. Because they're good created things, they're not meant to be gods. Not meant to be masters. Now at this point you might be thinking, okay, so this is bad for us, but why is it bad if we're born slaves? Why is it our fault? And the answer is because it's not simply in our nature, but it's, it's also the fact that we love it. And it's here that I want us to turn to Hosea because in Hosea we have this beautiful picture of slavery to sin but also how we're freed. Hosea is one of the most shocking books of the Old Testament. At the start of Hosea chapter 1, it says that the word of the Lord came to Hosea. So the word of the Lord comes to the holy prophet and the word of the Lord is, Hosea, I want you to go and marry a prostitute. I don't think most prophets in those days were expecting that kind of command from God. And so Hosea marries this woman, Goma. And in verse 3 of chapter 1, it says, So he went and took Goma, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. So he has a son with Goma, and the son's name is Jezreel. And there's a promise that God will bring defeat to Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And then in verse 6 it says she conceived again and bore a daughter. And it doesn't say that she bore him a daughter. So it's not his. And the name of the child, God says, call her name No Mercy. (laughs) What a name for your kid. Verse 8, when she had weaned No Mercy, she conceived and bore a son. Again, not his. And the Lord said, call his name Not My People, for you're not my people and I am not your God. Hosea gets commanded to marry this woman as a lived-out parable of Israel's relationship to God, that Israel is like the faithless bride who have willingly left their husband in order to shack up with the idols of the world. It says that idolatry is like spiritual adultery. 
that as Gomer abandoned Hosea, it was a picture of Israel's abandonment of God. Now, we're not Israel. There's not a neat parallel between us and Israel, but it is true that all of us are guilty of treating God in the same way. He's our maker. We exist because of him. And yet all of us, regardless of whether we're a Christian or not, all of us have run from him to other gods. We have made things created by God ultimate and treated them like they're gods and God isn't. And so turn to chapter 3. I want you to imagine this. See, chapter 2, God offers hope. At the end of chapter 2, Have a look with me. It says, I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. There's hope here because God's involved. And so at the start of chapter 3, imagine this. The Lord commands Hosea, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. You might go, what's with the raisins thing? That's weird. Uh, it, It seems to me that cakes of raisins were involved in idolatry in a particular idolatrous practice. It's not that raisins are bad, and if you really don't like raisins, you can't use this as an excuse to justify it. But imagine the holy man of Israel goes down to the red light district and his his horse is packed. He carries with him silver and a heap of barley and he buys back his own wife. The word used for this is ransom. Uh, We think ransom is the price that you pay kidnappers. We think Mel Gibson, (laughs) give me back my son. But in the Bible, ransom is actually the price paid to set a slave free. In the ancient world, the ransom price was the price paid to free a slave. It was called redemption. To redeem someone out of slavery was to buy them out, to pay the ransom, to set them free. And Hosea goes and buys back his bride from the pimp. It's remarkable. And notice, it's not just a duty thing. God doesn't say, go down and buy her and bring her home and say, be good. What does God say? Go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Which means he loved her in the first place, even when he knew what she was. And it means he's going to love her again even after she's done what she's done. And so this is meant to be a glimpse of God's love for Israel, but I hope you see that Hosea's act here is actually a glimpse of Christ. Christ is the greater Hosea. He doesn't leave the nice part of town to go to the red light district. He leaves the glory of heaven to come to earth. And he comes to buy us to redeem us, to pay the ransom price, to set us free from our slavery to sin, to set free a people who have scorned his love and mocked and belittled him. And he doesn't just load up a horse with 15 shekels of silver and some barley. No, no, the ransom price is his blood. See, look at Romans 6, verse 6 with me again. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. On the cross, Christ sets us free from slavery to sin. We know this, right? Mark 10.45, For the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. 
And the result, have a look at chapter 6, verse 22 of Romans with me. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit that you get leads to sanctification. That means a gradual growing in righteousness and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The result is that when a person trusts in Jesus in his death, they're set free from the power and the penalty of sin that they become slaves of God, that they're given eternal life. And so none of us by any means can get ourselves out from the power and penalty of sin. Only Christ redeems. On the cross, he paid our penalty in our place. He covered our debt. He set us free. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, the Bible says that we can't save ourselves, that we've all got to serve somebody. And that a life built on anything other than Christ is slavery to sin that leads to death. And so the question for you today is, which master will you serve? But more than that, will your master die for you? Does your master love you? Will your master keep his promises? Will your master give itself, himself, herself, whatever it is for you? Will it pursue you despite your mistakes? Will your master love you again even when you fail? If you're not a believer here today, I want to encourage you to consider who you serve, to see that the Lord is offering love to you, to all of us, despite our faithlessness. It's never too late to come back. We can trust him. He offers freedom today. So real slavery is slavery to sin. It's the fact that we can't get out from underneath it. And how does God free us? Well, Christ comes and pays the ransom price for us. And so I want us to finish by considering what should this life of freedom look like? Because it could sound like you become a Christian and you don't sin anymore. Look at at verse 14 of chapter 6. It says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. I don't know if you read that and think, oh, gosh, I often feel like sin has dominion over me. I'm a Christian. What it's saying is because we are redeemed, grace is more powerful than sin, that grace empowers our ability to say no to sin. And if you wrestle with the fact that you're a Christian and you often sin and you think you should be better, here's the really good news is that the bloke in chapter 6 who writes sin will no longer have dominion over you also writes Romans chapter 7. Have a look with me at at chapter 7 verse 15. He's talking about the law and sin and how the law exposes sin. But in verse 15 he says, I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. The guy who wrote the Bible had a struggle with the fact that he didn't want to sin, but he still did. Isn't that a comfort? Isn't that incredible? You're not the only one who wrestles with the fact that you're a sinner and you don't want to be. That the guy who wrote a good chunk of the New Testament also had the same wrestle. At the end of chapter 7, he actually says, who will rescue us from this mess? And he says, praise be to our Lord Jesus, who rescues us. See, freedom from sin doesn't mean that all of a sudden when you're a Christian, you're suddenly going to be perfect. No. 
But rather what it does mean is that what Christ has done leads to change. And so how should our life of freedom look? I want to give you one big idea that has lots of possibilities. And it really comes from verse 12 and verse 13. Have a look with me. So he says, you're dead to sin, you're alive in Christ, you're united to Christ by faith. Christ has set you free from the power and penalty of sin. Here's the application, verse 12. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Basically says, don't be a slave of sin. Don't don't serve sin, rather be a slave of Christ. And he's not saying God will accept you when you get it right. He says God has accepted you. You've become his slave, so act like it. Be who you are. If you're a Christian, you're no longer a slave to sin, so stop acting that way. Now I realise this is just one of those things. Isn't that really easy to say? Isn't that really hard to do? Some of us here today, uh, we're Christians and we feel trapped in sin and uh, our life is marked by guilt and shame. And church and church community is hard because we feel the need to show up on Sunday and fake, like we've got our lives all together when the truth is if a whole bunch of us were to see our real life, we'd be ashamed. And if that's you, I just want to beg you to see that God loves you. The beautiful thing about redemption is he knew exactly what he was getting when he bought you. Hosea knew exactly who he was getting as his bride. He was getting a woman committed to prostitution. And he loved her. And God said, go love her again. Which means if you're a Christian struggling with guilt and shame, with sin that feels like it is your master and you can't break free, Know today that God loves you. He loves you again when you fail. But there's also the call to not let sin abound, that we're called not to treat his grace lightly. If you're trapped in sin, the only way things change is if you bring it into the light. The only way things change is if you confess. If you ask God for forgiveness, if you seek help and accountability, But let grace drive you. Let grace encourage you. He's calling you to live out who he's made you to be. Many of us may not feel trapped by sin, but I reckon one of the prevailing conditions of the Christian is apathy. We're like like released slaves who have put off some sin but wander amongst different masters often respectable ones that look good to the world and even might look good to people in church but aren't actually the Lord Jesus. I mean, if someone watched your life, who would they say your master is? If someone watched your daydreams, how you spent your cash, if someone monitored your first response to every situation, your first thought, Who would they say your master is? You see, a slave obeys his master. A slave listens to his master. A slave does the work of his master. And a redeemed wife should love her husband. So it's not just service that's dutiful, but that comes from the heart, a place of love. He actually says you... You've become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed in Romans. 
I've thought about this for me this week. And here's, here's my honest answer. I think the thing I'm most prone to serve is me. My comfort. My wants. The grandmaster of my life is me, often. But here's the truth. I'm a terrible master. And you shouldn't serve me. I shouldn't be your master. (laughs) How awful would that be for everyone? And my guess is that for many of us, we are our own masters, functionally. You know, some of us, money is our master. For some of us, it's a comfy retirement with regular holidays. That's our master. For some of us, it's our reputation. That's our master. Or our kids are our master. Or our health is our master. Christ didn't save us from slavery to sin so we could turn from serving sin to serve a different sin. And especially not sin that's really loved by 21st century Australian secular culture. He saved us so that we would serve him. Look at verse 19. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. It's tricky language. When he's he's really just saying this, he's saying, you know how zealous you pursued sin. Have at least the same zeal in pursuing Christ. You know how zealous you were in pursuing sinful desires. Turn that around and give that passion. To Christ. Pursue Christ like the person addicted to plastic surgery pursues beauty. Pursue Christ like the parent so concerned that their child be the best and most amazing thing at everything in the world. Pursue Christ like that, with that kind of dedication. See, we're not saved out of sin into nothing, but into slavery of Christ. Consider all the things that you do in life your work, your school, driving, eating, cleaning, or maybe not cleaning so much the TV you watch, the shopping you do, the time with friends and family. If you're a Christian, do you do those things as a slave of Christ? At a very base level, is your, is your life marked by service? Because slaves serve. That's what they do. Do you put yourself last? Because Christ said that was greatness. Perhaps today you need reminding that Christ became a slave for you that he served, that he left the glory of heaven, that he died a death to set you free from the power and penalty of sin and that it was an act loaded with love. So that if you're a husband who just struggles to serve, you're the first to sit down and the last to get up, that you might be quick to serve your wife to be the chief servant of your household. If you're the person in the workplace who complains because no one ever does anything the way that you like it, that you might be the first to serve. That you might be a serve everywhere, at church, at home, at work, on the road, dare I say. You might even let some people in front of you. At the supermarket checkout aisle as you've got your four-pack of toilet paper. You see, our service isn't meant to be this cold, dutiful thing. It's meant to be loaded with love. We're a people who know what it's like to be slaves and set free. Imagine imagine the people in the camps being liberated by allied soldiers. 
Imagine the feeling of freedom as they walk through the gates. What a bizarre thing it would be to go back and live there in the camp again. We serve what we love. We're slaves to our loves. And so let Christ's love melt you. Let it fill you and move you to love others. It's going to be hard and we're all going to struggle. But Christ actually makes it possible to grow. His grace does. Perhaps you need to be less focused on instant change and more focused on change over the last three to five years. Are you growing in righteousness? Are you not the same man or woman that you were five years ago? See, a world where everyone seeks their own kingdom and freedom is awful. But imagine how our community or even our families or our workplaces, imagine how we would look if we were zealous to be slaves of Christ, if we were eager to listen and obey, eager to repent and grow, eager to serve, eager to put the needs of others before ourselves. I think Christ the Redeemer would look spectacular. And so, Christian, you've been set free. Let not sin reign. Remember that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our master is one who dies for us to set us free, who gives us himself and ultimately gives us life forever. No other master will love you like that. No other master is worth your service. Let me pray. Lord, thank you that on the cross Christ paid the penalty for our sin. He paid the ransom price to set us free from slavery to sin. Thank you that you love us despite knowing our unfaithfulness and thank you that you continue to love us even when we fail over and over again. Thank you that Hosea's love for his unfaithful wife is a small picture of your love for us. May that move us and melt us. May it remind us that Grace is always available. And for those who don't know you today, I pray they would see that you're a God who loves them and that you're a master who serves us. And for us who are Christians, Lord, help us to put sin behind us. Help us to be slaves of Christ and servants everywhere. We need your help. It's hard. And so help us to be repenting of sin with joy and encouraging one another to continue to serve Christ to the end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.